1: Thank you, Clyde, Anthony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 362nd edition of Talk in Tuesday, brought to you today by ICD University. And joining me this morning is my co-host, the very popular Dr. Erica Reimer. Dr. Reimer is the founder and the president of Erica Reimer M.D., Incorporated, and good morning, Erica.
2: Good morning, Chuck, and hello, everyone.
1: This morning, our lead story is about surprise balance billing. As you know, we reported on this story about two weeks ago with Holly Louie. Today, we continue with Part 2, featuring former CMS official Matthew Albright.
2: I'm looking forward to hearing from Matthew.
1: Indeed. Matthew was the director of the Administrative Simplification Group at CMS. This morning he's going to report on billing laws on the state level as well as billing protections by the U.S. Senate.
2: I like that there's a simplification group at CMS.
1: <laughs> indeed you should. Also on today's Talk In Tuesday, Mel Tully returns with a report on compliance at CDI. I know that CDI subjects are very important to you, Erica.
2: They are indeed very important. Lori Johnson has our ICD-10 coding report.
1: And Rose Dunn returns with a Dunn report about HIM professionals and the revenue cycle. And uh, you're going to be reporting on um, sepsis, is that right?
2: Yes, I'm not done with it yet.
1: We have much news reporting. We begin this morning with Tim Powell, who's at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk.
0: Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is sponsored by ICD University, inviting you to download the four-part series on E&M coding, now available on demand.
3: Simply click on the handout tab in today's broadcast. Here now is Tim Powell. Hi Chuck, today we're going to talk about oligopoly. Oligopoly is a noun and it means a state of limited competition in which a market is shared by a small number of producers or sellers. I've been looking at data from the CMS drug dashboard. There are currently three drugs that treat blood clots and reduce clotting due to atrial fibrillation or AFib. These drugs and their manufacturers are Zarelto, created by Bayer and marketed by Janssen Pharmaceutica, Eloquist, uh created by Bristol-Myers Squibb and Pfizer, and Pradaxa, created by Boringer and Ingelheim. These three companies compete for the same market, but they all agree on one thing. They agree on price. That is because in a situation where a few providers control the supply of a unique or differentiated product, the rules of competition break down. While members of an oligopoly compete for market share, they all maximize profit by agreeing to a price to charge people buying the product. Instead of one member grabbing market share by reducing the price, the members of an oligopoly realize the way to maximize their profit is for all the members to create a uniform highest price based on what the total market will bear. This is true even though these companies created these drugs in different environments with different cost structures. Let's take a look at the average Medicare Part D spend per member for these drugs from CMS data. Xarelto's monthly spend is $502.76, Eliquis is $484.83, and Pradaxa is $504.81. More significant is what these drugs sell for in other countries for a monthly supply. Let's just look at Canada. In Canada, a monthly supply of Xarelto is $131. A monthly supply of Zarelto is $71.50. And a monthly supply of Pradaxa is $80. Here's the kicker. You can buy these drugs from Canadian pharmacies for less than what Medicare and Medicaid pay the manufacturers. I heard the sound of your jaw hitting the floor. You're bound to ask me if I'm saying that our federal government and most states are paying drug companies more than what drugs cost wholesale in other countries. And the answer, unfortunately, is yes. Where I live here in Florida... Our new governor is attempting to allow the state to buy drugs from Canada. Governor Ron DeSantis is seeking a waiver under the Federal Medicare Prescription Drug Improvement and Modernization Act of 2003. And while this seems straightforward that states can do this, during the battle for Obamacare, drug manufacturers successfully blocked this effort around Medicare drug prices. In the words of Robert Kennedy, There is a Chinese curse which says, may he live in interesting times. And like it or not, we are living in interesting times. And with that, back to you, Chuck.
1: Thanks, Tim, very much. That was Tim Powell. Tim is a compliance expert and an ICD-10 monitor national correspondent. It's Tuesday, it's March 26, 2019, and you're listening to the 362nd edition of Talked in Tuesday. Stand by.
0: Health information management, HIM professionals, work diligently to ensure that healthcare data-related patient encounters are accurate, secure, and accessible. In recognition of their tireless efforts, AHIMA is celebrating its 30th annual Health Information Professionals Week, HIP, now through March 30th. Here at ICD-10 Monitor and Talk 10 Tuesday, we are celebrating, too, along with AHEMA, by recognizing the important work being done by HIM professionals to ensure the effective management of health data. It's HIP Week, and it's HIP to be HIP. All week, look for special savings from our team to yours. We're offering $75 off ICD-10 Monitor purchases of $150 or more. Simply use
1: the code HIP, H-I-P, at checkout. Thanks, Clark. And there's one way you can get more bang for your buck with this hip promotion. Simply purchase the on-demand four-part E&M webcast series with Dr. Jeffrey Lerman, and you can get the 2019 Evaluation and Management Essentials eBook from MedLearn free. Now that's $183 value. Just use the coupon code HIP at the checkout. And for our coding report here now is Lori Johnson. Good morning, Lori. Welcome to the program.
4: Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, Erica. Now we are in daylight saving time. Are you getting enough sleep? So often we sacrifice sleep so we can work, do housework, take care of family demands, or even watch a good movie or basketball game. Sleep is just as important as a healthy diet and regular physical activity. Poor sleep habits can lead to an increased health risk for obesity, diabetes, hypertension, coronary artery disease, stroke, or even for mental health. So how much sleep do you need in a 24-hour day? According to the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, if you are in the age of 4 to 12 months, you need 12 to 16 hours of sleep. If you're 1 to 2 years old, you need 11 to 14 hours. 3 to 5 years old, you need 10 to 13 hours. 6 to 12 years old, you need 9 to 12 hours. And 13 to 18, you you need 8 to 10 hours of sleep. And those of us who are older than 18, we need 7 or more hours of sleep. As mentioned before, a lack of sleep can lead to some chronic diseases, such as diabetes, specifically type 2. And we, they found that sleep duration and quality are predictors of A1C, which is a marker for blood sugar control. Cardiovascular disease, Sleep apnea is a predictor of cardiovascular disease. For obesity, insufficient sleep impacts the function of the hypothalamus, which regulates appetite and energy usage in children. In depression, they've found that sleep disturbance can be a symptom of depression. Some other key sleep disorders, include insomnia, which is an inability to initiate or maintain sleep. The ICD-10 code is G47.00, and it is not a CC or MCC, and it can be an HCC if the underlying um, disorder is coded with it. Narcolepsy is an excessive daytime sleepiness combined with sudden muscle weakness. The code is G47.419, not a CC or MCC, um, and it's not an HCC. Restless Leg Syndrome is that creeping sensation that's associated with aches and pains throughout the legs and relieved by movement of the legs. The code is G25.81. It is not a CC or MCC, and it's not an HCC. So sleep apnea is an interruption of regular breathing or obstruction of the airway during sleep. Signs and symptoms may include snoring, gasping, or snorting noises during sleep. This condition may also lead to congestive heart failure. The code is G47.30. And again, it's not a CC or MCC, nor is it an HCC. So Erica, I hope I didn't catch you napping. I'm turning it back to you.
2: Thanks, Lori. That was nationally recognized coding authority, Lori Johnson. Lori is a senior healthcare consultant for Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC. Chuck?
1: Thanks, Erica. And thank you, Lori, very much. And here now with the Tucked In Tuesday Guy Report is Mel Tully. Good morning, Mel. Thank you.
5: It is my pleasure today to talk about compliance as being at the top of everyone's list. And as we look at artificial intelligence powered solutions, we absolutely have to be certain that they align with applicable coding guidelines. Streamlining the healthcare system to provide the highest quality of care at a lower cost for patients should be the goal of all organizations. While prioritizing this initiative, along with reducing waste and improper payments, much attention has been paid to the role of EHR clinical documentation and outcomes reporting with respect to compliance. Value-based reimbursement models, reform policies, and even growing consumerism highlight the importance of compliant clinical documentation and coding practices. We know, for for example, that most improper Medicare payments can be attributed to documentation errors from small mistakes like missing signatures to documentation that only reflects treatment and not the underlying diagnosis. Incomplete documentation means that CMS cannot determine that the care provided was medically necessary, which leads to inappropriate reimbursements. At the other end of the spectrum, of course, are a small number of cases that overstate patient conditions and level of care which is not just bad for patient care, it opens up the organization to other risks. But comprehensive documentation that captures accurate disease acuity in the patient population gives clinicians a more detailed picture of patient health to recommend better treatment and plans and improve outcomes. Artificial intelligence empowered solutions do help manage the EHR clinical documentation These technologies can support both physician and clinical documentation specialists in their efforts to create a comprehensive document that shows both accurate and compliant clinical documentation and meets CMS requirements. At the point of care, artificial intelligence-powered computer assisted physician documentation solutions can augment physicians' knowledge with evidence-based clinical decision support helping to identify undocumented and unspecified critical details and diagnoses. Specifically, the computer-assisted physician documentation solution analyzes patient notes in real time, simultaneously reviewing the entire medical record to assess the patient's full condition. As the physician builds the documentation, the computer-assisted physician documentation interactively prompts with evidence-based clarifications that improve the quality of the documentation. When presented with these clarifications and the underlying basis for the recommendations, physicians rely on their own judgment to accept or reject each one. Physicians have the final word. Likewise, within the CDI workflow, clinically focused programs provide evidence-based clarification guidance and documentation decision support to documentation specialists. So solutions bring both the CDI teams and physicians together in a clinical dialogue about each patient. The team reviews and validates that all diagnoses are clinically supported and that coding rules are applied appropriately. Technology solutions must follow applicable laws and coding guidelines. Regardless of how clarifications and queries are presented, Whether in-person, in-physician workflow, or during CDI process, they must be grounded in the guidelines from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and presented in accordance with all legal requirements. Healthcare organizations must remain vigilant about the technologies they employ to support both documentation and compliance. Clinical sources must be sound and coding practices must follow legal guidelines. Further, there can never come a time when the technologies replace the people in this process. No matter how far artificial intelligence advances, the algorithms will always be designed to augment or amplify human intelligence. To be sure, artificial intelligence will make physicians and CDI professionals more accurate and efficient, but technology cannot replace the human judgment it's so critical to quality, patient safety, and compliance. The integrity of clinical documentation affects everything from patient care to quality scores and even to provide a defense against denials. And for these reasons, compliance remains at the top
2: of everyone's list. Thank you, and I'll pass this off to Erica now. That was Mel Tully. Mel is Vice President of Clinical Services and Education for the Healthcare Division of Nuance Communication.
1: As we mentioned at the top of the broadcast, Rose Dunn is here today. Rose is a nationally recognized HIM expert, and she's past president of the American Health Information Management Association. Rose continues her series on revenue cycle and how HIM can play a role in other areas of the revenue cycle. Here now is the aforementioned Rose Dunn. Good morning, Rose.
6: Well, good morning, Chuck. For this third revenue cycle segment, I thought I'd offer some thoughts on denial management. HIMSS recently reported that payer denials is the top revenue cycle challenge facing hospitals today, and I don't doubt that. I encourage our listeners to tackle the denials challenge by peeling the onion. Just don't eat the whole onion at one time. Pull your billing data files for your denials and capture the claim adjustment reason codes or CARC codes and their definitions. Sort and sum by the CARC code. Sort again by the CARC code volume highest to lowest. Then pull your team together assess their options and determine which ones can be fixed quickly so in addition to our him leader of the team the team should include pfs coding the billing system it representatives your data analyst cdm coordinator and someone who knows your system edits inside out from time to time you may need to pull in others especially those charge generating departments as you review the denial causes segment those that are controllable from those that are not. A patient who is using someone else's insurance card and has a service that is later denied is likely uncontrollable. However, receiving a denial because we didn't check coverage eligibility at the time of registration can be controlled to a great extent. Pick three controllable causes, fix them, and see if the volume for these three degrees within 30 days of the fix. Then pick three more and do the same until you've exhausted the controllable causes and watch your denial rate drop. Now, on behalf of ICD-10 Monitor and its parent company MedLearn Media, I'd like to close by recognizing all health information management professionals here at the start of HIP week. Although many of our professionals do much of their work behind the scenes, that doesn't mean they do not make a difference. It's quite the opposite. It's through our coding that the organization's reimbursement is derived. Through our efforts, we ensure data integrity by correcting duplicate numbers, identifying and correcting clinical directional errors, and a host of other errors in data that we submit to state and regulatory organizations, not to mention addressing our patients' requests for amendments to their records. Our intervention to ensure a complete medical record facilitates patient care, regulatory compliance, and documentation integrity. And yes, at times, our lives can be painful. But the product of these tedious and detailed efforts is the capture of meaningful data for strategic patient care and research purposes. Those professionals who advance to the C-suite we salute you and ask that you continue to mentor and advocate for other health information management professionals so they too can make their way to that decision-making table. Those professionals in education and unique research roles or in the vendor sector providing necessary support services and those who are creating new technologies to improve data and documentation integrity, we applaud you as well. Finally, I ask each of you to take pride in everything you do to ensure health information is as flawless as possible, provides evidence of the care that was provided, and ensures the integrity of the revenue each of your organizations receive. Our roots started with Grace Whiting Myers 122 years ago. I'm proud that I am a health information management professional and surrounded by so many talented colleagues for all you do enjoy the recognition you so deserve during this week thank you and back to you erica
2: thanks rose and i would like to add my personal happy health information professionals week too that was rose dunn rose is the chief operations officer for first class solutions and a past president of ahima chuck
1: thanks erica and rose thank you very much and as we'd like to say it's hip to be hip during hip week thanks again Our lead story this morning is about surprise balance billing. As you know, we reported on this story two weeks ago with Holly Louie. Today we continue with part two featuring former CMS official Matthew Albright. Matthew was the director of the Administrative Simplification Group at CMS this morning. He reports on billing laws on the state level as well as billing protections by the U.S. Senate. Here now is Matthew
7: Albright. Good morning, Matthew. Good morning, Chuck. As many of your listeners know, the U.S. Senate has been talking about introducing legislation to prohibit surprise balance billing since last fall. And just this week, we learned that the House of Representatives is getting into the action by holding the first hearing on this same issue in early April. Now, I'll, I'll touch on where the Senate is and their thinking in a moment, but I did want to jump back a bit. And talk about some of the themes that we've seen at the state level on this issue. One trend that I think your listeners might find interesting is that more requirements are being placed on the provider in the more recent state laws than what we saw with surprise balanced billing legislation before 2017. For example, of the 19 states with laws on their books before 2017, nearly half did not prohibit providers from balanced billing, but rather required the insurer to reimburse providers adequately enough so that, ultimately, balanced billing didn't happen. Now, in contrast to these early state laws, all six states that have passed laws since 2017 specifically prohibit the provider from balance billing, the patient. Now, another trend is in the increase in laws that require more transparency from hospitals and physicians, specifically on informing patients of the possibility that they may receive services from out-of-network providers while in the in-network facility. Now, this shifting of responsibilities in the state laws does not necessarily mean that the provider is on the losing end of recent surprise billing laws. Rather, the patient is now truly kept out of the transaction. The only parties involved now are the payer and the provider, and, of course, uh, the government, right, which brings us back to the Senate's activities on the issue. While all sides support protecting the patient from surprise balance billing, there is a lot of disagreement on how much providers should be paid by insurers in these surprise billing situations. So right now, uh, after months of input by industry and others, the Senate appears to be deciding between three approaches for reimbursement. First approach, they'll pick a specific list or a specific rate or benchmarks to be applied nationally. Some examples they're looking at for this include uh, Medicare or percentage of Medicare, contracted in-network rate, or perhaps a benchmark based off of Fair Health or HCCI. Second approach, allow negotiations or agreements to take place between providers and plans with an arbitration process in place if negotiations fail. Third approach, require non-network physicians working in in-network hospitals to bundle their fees with the hospital's other's fees that would then be billed all together at an in-network rate. Of these three approaches, negotiation is the most used approach at the state level. Almost three-quarters of the states with protections against emergency room balance billing have negotiation as either the only option, as one of several options, or implied because the state doesn't have a specific reimbursement benchmark. So stuck at the crossroads between these three approaches, it looks like the Senate won't introduce a bill until mid-April or even as late as May. And if you look at the political landscape, there's very little chance of any substantial health care legislation being passed before the 2020 election. But surprise balance billing legislation has solid bipartisan legs, and there's good reason for lawmakers to latch onto this issue, pass a bill, and proclaim some victory for health care consumers. So as they say in your business, Chuck, more to come.
1: Thanks, Matt, very much. That was Matthew Albright. Matthew is the Chief Legislative Affairs Officer for Zealous Healthcare. Thanks again. Now's the time for a very popular segment here at Talk in Tuesday, and it's called Talk Back, and it features our own Dr. Erica Reamer.
2: I was looking up the MASH episode for this quote, and I was surprised to see my memory had morphed the script. It was Season 1, Episode 17, called Sometimes You Hear the Bullet." And Henry consoles Hawkeye by saying, there are certain rules about a war, and rule number one is young men die. Rule number two is doctors can't change rule number one. Funny, I remembered rule number one as being patients die. I cut myself a little slack because it did air January 28, 1973. It seemed apropos to my discussion of sepsis. Here's the thing. If you don't recognize sepsis, and you don't name and diagnose it, the patient may very well die from it anyway. We get so caught up in the definitions and SIRS and the clinical criteria and core measures that we forget that the point is infections get out of control, organ dysfunction ensues, and then patients die of overwhelming sepsis. And sometimes doctors can't change rule number one but sometimes appropriate aggressive treatment of sepsis can avert death. That was the intent of the core measures. I'm a little tired of this debate. If you commit murder, but the police officer who arrests you forgets to read you your Miranda rights correctly, and you get off on a technicality, does this mean you are innocent? If the attending physician doesn't agree with sepsis 3 and never documents sepsis, but you die from multiple system organ failure from an infection, does that mean you didn't have sepsis? It was so much easier when you're dealing with Koch's postulates from 19th century. These were the criteria designed to establish a causal relationship between a microbe and a disease. Essentially, number 1, the microorganism must be found in abundance in all organisms suffering from the disease, but it shouldn't be present in healthy individuals. 2, the microorganism must be isolated from a diseased organism and be able to grow in pure culture. 3, The cultured microorganism should cause disease when introduced into a healthy organism. And four, the microorganism must be re-isolated from the inoculated diseased experimental host and be identical to the original causative agent. You may recognize that even these are not 100%. There are asymptomatic carriers. There are healthy individuals who have immunity to certain organisms, so they do not fall ill when injected with the infectious agent. Some pathogens cannot be cultured in a lab. But generally speaking, the discovery of microorganisms and the recognition that they cause disease was revolutionary. But this never worked for lots of diseases and illnesses, did it? Blood cultures are often negative. Lots of disease processes are not caused by germs or viruses, but by complex multifactorial factors. There are autoimmune diseases and psychiatric illnesses. There are syndromes which are determined by a constellation of signs and symptoms. You can still have rheumatoid arthritis if you're a rheumatoid factor negative. There is no gold standard test to diagnose PTSD, and it can manifest in many different ways. If a patient denies that they have a mass and a doctor never makes the diagnosis, will that prevent them from succumbing to metastatic cancer? I think everyone needs to remember why we care about diagnosing sepsis. It isn't for epidemiology, and it isn't to end up in a favorable DRG. It isn't for quality metrics. It's because of rule number one and rule number two. Please read my article in today's ICD-10 monitor on sepsis. On a personal note, I want to apologize for the topic of my talk back. When I wrote it weeks ago to be a companion piece with my article on SERS and sepsis, I had no idea how close to home it would hit. Our listeners may have no idea what an effort it was for you, Chuck, to do today's show. Chuck is a consummate professional, and the show must go on. But on behalf of myself and everyone at Talk 10 Tuesdays, we want to offer our sincerest condolences on the tragic loss of your wife Pam last week. We are sending you our love virtually. I wish rule number two wasn't valid. Back to you, Chuck.
1: Thanks, uh, Erica, very much. Uh, That is going to be a wrap for our 362nd edition of Talk 10 Tuesdays. And Erica, I want to thank our panelists today, Rose Dunn, Lori Johnson, Tim Powell, Mel Tully, and our special guest, Matthew Albright. And remember, no matter where you are, you can always listen to Talk Ten Tuesday Podcast anytime, anywhere, on any device. And it's absolutely free. You can listen to us on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. Until next Tuesday, I'm Chuck Buck, reporter for Talk 10 Tuesday and I see the 10 monitor. Thank you again very much for being with us.
0: Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.